Hello, and welcome to the Taurus Report. This is the 20th episode, or uh, we could call it uh, the first episode of Season 2. And today we are going to talk about unexpected redshifts, unexpected patterns in the redshift, and redshift, looking at it in the sense of it um, contradicting standard hot Big Bang cosmology. Before getting into the unexpected uh, red shifts, I would just like to remind everyone that uh, all of the links that I mentioned during the course of this presentation, those links will be included in the comments section for the video. And also, I just want to remind everyone in addition to that, that if you open up a browser and you just type in Taurus report all as one word, Taurus report as one word dot com, and you press enter, that will bring you to my website. And then uh, here you can see links to these videos on Spotify and YouTube, on Facebook. And you can also click on this link, which will uh, bring you to a copy of uh, my paper, Cyclic Gravity and Cosmology, CGC, which explains my views on uh, the way that I believe our universe is constructed. And uh, you can read about it uh, in this paper. Now, to continue with uh, what I was talking about, which was the patterns in the uh, redshift, there's an excellent site uh, created by my friend Lee Greer, and this link also is in the comments uh, at uh, enlightenmentlegacy.net, uh, Enlightenment and uh, you'll find this link in the co comments. And he delves into this into quite some detail about uh, the various difficulties for hot Big Bang cosmology in dealing with uh, galactic redshifts. Now, one thing that comes out is the current, what is called the Hubble tension. And that is illustrated uh, best by uh, this chart, wherein Lee kind of details all the different studies of the galactic redshift and puts them sort of into two columns. You've got this uh, sort of reddish uh, magenta column here, and then you've got this uh, blue cyan column here. And it's divided into what are called indirect observations and direct observations. So I'd like to explain a little bit about that uh, before going. When we're talking about a direct observation, that would mean something like a CFID star that spins with a well-known rate. It sends out a burst of radiation at very well-known intervals. And so if one observes a lengthening or a contracting of the interval at which that thing is spinning, then one can guess at, uh, well, I shouldn't say guess, one could calculate uh, the rate at which that object is accelerating away from us, or if it was shortening, it would be accelerating towards us. 
And so something like that is called a direct observation. Now, I want to qualify that a little bit in that in my theory, CGC, I posit uh, something, I resurrect an idea called tired light, which uh, it has been disproven to be the source of all of the redshift. And so uh, all of the redshift that we observed of distant objects cannot be due only to tired light. But it is my claim that some portion of that redshift is due to tired light. And what I mean by tired light is simply what is meant by the term is that as light travels intergalactic distances, so we're talking about distances between galaxy clusters, uh, as it uh, travels such huge distances, it loses energy uh, ever so slightly. And in my opinion, that accounts for some of the redshift. Now, when we're talking about indirect, what do we mean by indirect? Indirect means when we do computer models and simulations based on certain assumptions, like when someone assumes that the uh, CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, when one assumes that that is the quote-unquote uh, afterglow of the Big Bang, and then one looks at the various uh, uh, ripples or anisotropies within the CMB, and one extrapolates forward, saying that those imperfections, ripples, or uh, anisotropies were the source of the structure of the universe, meaning the distribution of all of the galaxies uh, and galaxy clusters that we observe now, originally came from those minute ripples in the in matter at the time of the Big Bang and the cosmic microwave background radiation is a picture of that, if you will. And so then if one makes a model based on all those assumptions that I just spoke, if one makes a model based on all those assumptions and then extrapolates forward, one gets a different value for the Hubble constant, which is the rate of expansion. And that rate of expansion is, according to the hot Big Bang cosmology, that is what is driving the Hubble constant. That is what is driving the redshift that we observe. And so getting back to Lee Greer's uh, website, wherein he is uh, trying to depict what's going on, this blue area is all the studies that are based on the direct observations like the CFID stars that I uh, mentioned earlier. And then all of the things falling in the pink area are those that are dependent upon indirect modeling. And we see a very large discrepancy between these two things. And so that is one problem with standard cosmology's uh, presentation of cosmic experience. Now here, uh, Lee is having a little fun with all of the parameter fitting that is done. The wheels within wheels uh, that, that is done with all of the modeling in order to lock down that value of the Hubble constant. 
but after that, we get into some interesting uh, data here. If we look at all these uh, uh, plots of the uh, quasar with their redshift, so this plot uh, is how far away they are is on the vertical axis and the red shift is on the horizontal axis and the thing that we observe here is that you know they don't fall exactly on the uh, line predicted by standard cosmology and that is this magenta line here and in fact they scatter all over the place and if you look at this scattering in my opinion this is evidence of what it is that I'm talking about when I say that tired light accounts for some of the redshift. In other words, all of these objects, as we look uh, far away from us, the further something is away from us, the more redshifted it is. And it seems that that trend is is upward as we might expect but because there's a huge amount of variety uh, yes the general trend is upward but there is a huge amount of variety in the uh, redshift then that speaks to in my opinion what I present in CGC where at differing distances gravity can be attractive and repulsive uh, so it will be it might be you know if a galaxy clusters are at this distance they might be uh, attracted and interacting with each other if they get a little farther gravity at that distance might be repulsive and so it just so happens in my opinion that the present state of the universe is such that most giant superclusters are pushing on each other and under CGC, at some time, again, they will get to a distance where gravity turns positive, and they'll actually be attracted to each other. In fact, some of them might already be doing this. However, because there are such huge differences, uh, distances, I mean, since they are at such huge distances, uh, it may be that because of tired light, we haven't picked up on the fact that though their velocity may be radially away from us, they might be slowing down uh, due to attraction. Lee chronicles three broad categories of surprising redshifts. The first one we just looked at, uh, unusual scatters in the redshift relationships. So, you know, when you assume that our entire universe is more or less expanding in a uniform fra uh, fashion, then one would not expect to see these uh, huge scatters in the data like this, those that are above and below predicted by large margins, and yet that is what we see. Okay, so that is the first item. The second item is there seems to be some sort of correlation with uh, types of galaxies, like uh, shapes and types of galaxies, with specific redshift values. 
So galaxies come, of course, in all different shapes and sizes, and some of them we assume to be morphologically early, like what a galaxy looks like when it's first being formed. Some of them we assume are morphologically late, what a galaxy looks like later. And others are just of a completely different type. And we see a sort of a correlation in redshift. There seems to be some kind of dependency on galactic shape. And then the third one is associations of objects with differing redshifts in close distance association. So what does that mean? Uh, what that means is that um, if you have uh, clusters of galaxies that are near each other, then one would expect their redshift to be identical. Uh, or at least, like, you wouldn't expect it necessarily to be identical, but there should be some correlation. When you look at a certain region of space, like a certain angle and a certain depth as you're looking, you'd expect things like in that area to kind of be moving in the same direction and, uh, uh, and, and with the same speed and having the same redshift. And we see a lot of variety instead of... Uh, uh, seeing them consistent with each other. Before moving on to periodicity that's observed in redshift, I would just like to point out this uh, diagram in Lee's uh, site here where he shows this plot of the apparent magnitude of quasars along with their redshift. Now, we would expect that if quasars followed the Hubble relation, there should be a kind of a trend, like an, you know, an upward uh, trending line, um, as uh, or I guess it would be downward trending uh, because uh, uh, fainter apparent magnitude is to the left. So apparent magnitude is along the horizontal axis here at the bottom. And then the red shift is on the vertical last, uh, axis. So what we would kind of expect is that as you have a higher red shift, you should have a lower apparent magnitude. And that should be the general trend. So there should be a slopeward, a downward sloping line here. And instead we have a random uh, scatter plot and so the quasars don't really obey what would be expected of uh, uh, if uh, they were uh, simply uh, ex accelerating away from us at a greater rate the further uh, distance they are from us. Then I would like to move on from there to talk about uh, periodicity that appears in the redshift. And first, I'd want to kind of, before showing uh, parts of it as displayed on uh, Lee's website, I, I would like to just uh, digress a little bit to what my own theory would say about that. As I shared earlier, because uh, according to CGC, gravity can change from attractive to repulsive and back again, depending on... Uh, the distance. So we would expect to see this kind of periodicity where 
at a certain distance, um, masses might be attracted to each other. At further distances, they might be repulsed. So there'd be an acceleration away, in which case it would make sense for there to be a redshift. Then once they get beyond that, they might come to a new distance where it is attractive and they'd be accelerating towards each other. Now, on top of all of that, we have what I mentioned earlier about the tired light, meaning that the general trend is that light should be redshifted more so the further away something is. When you are talking at intergalactic distances, so at relatively short distances, like within a galaxy, uh, this effect would not be observed. But if you talk about the distances between intergalactic clusters, uh, at those distances, according to CGC, light does lose energy. So there would be this general trend towards redshiftedness, you know, the further away something is. But within that general trend, there should be, if CGC is correct, uh, some periodicity where you have uh, the redshift varying kind of as a, as a wave function. And this is exactly what we see uh, when we look at various studies uh, intended to show this. And I'm not going to go over every single link here because these are all at uh, the uh, enlightenmentlegacy.net website, which I said I've included in the comments. So you'd be able to go and explore all this yourself. But I just want to show some rather graphic observations of the periodicity uh, that is observed in, in the redshift in papers uh, spanning all the way from the 60s uh, up to the present time we have this uh, periodicity observed. And then at the end of that, and I will scroll down towards the bottom, there's a lot of great, uh, great data, graphics, links to the studies and everything at this site. And so I do recommend that you make a trip there and kind of explore all this. Uh, but down at the bottom, uh, there are various different proposals to try to explain the cause of this. Some of the proposals are within standard cosmology, cosmologists subscribing to GRLCDM being kind of modified to accommodate this uh, periodicity, and uh, others uh, putting forward radical departures from standard cosmology to try to explain this periodicity. And then uh, I want to uh, thank Lee for uh, mentioning my own theory, which also, uh, in my opinion, does explain this uh, periodicity, and that is uh, mentioned on the bottom here. And so I look forward to, to uh, visiting Lee's site uh, often to see for see updates. And then uh, before I close, I would like to explore a few other things that have come up in the past few months. And I'll uh, uh, take a look at sort of a random selection of uh, items that came up uh, in the past uh, month. The first thing I'd like to take a look at is this video that was put up by Sabine Hasenfelder. And here she's sort of poking a little fun at the 
multiverse uh, where uh, some physicists and astrophysicists have sort of proposed uh, because of the positing of inflation uh, as part of standard cosmology, uh, positing inflation has opened up the possibility, uh, as was pointed out by uh, Stephen Hawking and others, and I've included all these links in the comments, uh, as I said. So, when you posit something like inflation, where at the beginning of the universe, because we needed to come up with an explanation of why mass is so uniformly distributed throughout the universe. And the only way they could kind of explain that is if in the very early universe, before even the Big Bang, and that's the interesting thing to me, because most people tend to think of the Big Bang as the beginning, uh, but actually before the Big Bang, there'd be this inflation where the universe expanded at huge speeds, uh, you know, and, and when we say expanded, we're talking about space itself stretching. And so it's not expansion in the sense of an explosion. It's space itself rapidly expanding. And so if you posit this kinds of, kind of thing where you know, the entire universe expands out of something the size of a pinhead. And, you know, when you posit stuff like that, then, of course, the next uh, logical supposition might be that uh, this could happen all the time. Uh, and our universe is just one of... Uh, many different, who knows how many different universes, and we, we can posit all sorts of things like that. And the thing that, in my opinion, opened the door to all this was general relativity, where once you allow space itself to be stretched like that, as general relativity requires, then one can come up with all kinds of different mathematical expressions and say, space expanded or contracted according to this mathematical expression, you know, which is all well and good if you're talking about, you know, just speculation. And, uh, uh, and so uh, Sabine uh, Hoffenfelder, she goes through it all and uh, talks about all of these things. And, uh, you know, with some uh, humor, I enjoyed watching it and, and it's good, but, uh, you know, I had, a sort of a deja vu feeling about it, and uh, this is why. Um, and it has to do with, like, political questions. Uh, I, I am kind of a leftist myself, and I sort of believe that, and sorry for this digression into politics for a second, but uh, I'm explaining why I had this sort of deja vu feeling when I was watching Sabine make this presentation. And so, uh, in my view, and uh, it's my personal political view, my personal opinion, uh, the uh, two political parties in the United States, the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, to me, they are both like, uh, and I'm doing this to my right, I, I understand to you it's going to look like the left, but <laughs> I, I'm saying to the right, 
Uh, to me, uh, our two political par parties in the United States are extremely fanatical, hardcore right wing, where the Republicans are here, let's say, and the Democrats are like right here. And they make a huge deal about certain issues, kind of to de designed to deceive the public as if they're like far apart. And when I say hardcore right wing, I'm, I'm talking about uh, prison system in the U.S. I'm talking about the constant warfare. I'm talking about uh, a, a constant um, ignoring of the plight of, let's say, the lower 30% of income in the United States. Um, that sort of thing. That's what I mean by right wing. Okay. Uh, you know, kind of a hyper nationalism, a hyper militarism, a constant uh, uh, supporting and, and helping and uh, promoting uh, the various corporations, you know, uh, uh, huge wealth concentration, you know, in all of those things, our two political parties, they are both, you know, almost identical. They're, they're right next to each other, way out on the right wing, and they will bring up different things like uh, um, uh, LGBTQ uh, rights or else stuff like abortion, uh, basically various things, whatever they can find to get everybody riled up and arguing over uh, about things that do not affect the working class. Okay, and so, so what does this have to do with what Savid was talking about? And what it has to do to me is, uh, is with, I mean, I understand the humor of ridiculing uh, multiverses. Okay, but um, I have to be honest, in my opinion, uh, standard LCDM cosmology uh, is the same sort of absurdity. Uh, it's where your like magic, introducing various, in my view, fictional energy uh, entities like dark matter, dark energy, inflation, singularities, all of these, in my view, fictional things to kind of patch up a theory that's, that's obviously wrong. And so I would look at, like, I agree with Sabine that the whole multiverse thing is out here like, like way absurd, okay? But where I might differ from her is, I think, like, the whole idea of uh, uh, the stretching of space to begin with and the hot Big Bang to begin with. And most of standard cosmology is pretty ridiculous to me as well. And so those two things are kind of, like, out here. And then, in my view, standard cosmologists, they all want to have a debate in a very narrow field and none of them will go like outside of that narrow field uh, to argue about things. And so I appreciate uh, the humor and uh, I do recommend you watch this video by uh, Sabine because, you know, everything she talks about in the video, I, I agree with her view on. Um, I would just like to see that uh, ridicule the target for the ridicule, I would like to see that <laughs> expanded a little bit. But anyways, thank you, Sabine, for that video.
I would like to close with something that's uh, been in the news this past month, and that's this uh, James Webb telescope finds evidence of celestial monster stars the size of 10,000 suns lurking at the dawn of time. And again, I have a link to this article in the comments. And so what is this about? What is this about? And uh, for me, it's uh, more ridiculousness. Uh, uh, standard cosmologists coming up with uh, more imaginary fantasy things uh, to try to explain data that their theory can't explain. Specifically in this case is they're looking at... Um, stars within galaxies that are assumed to have formed around the uh, same time, very distant time in the past that Webb is looking at. And so they need to kind of posit that that's near the beginning of the universe. And if it's at the beginning of the universe, you kind of expect most things that you are looking at you would expect them to be in the same developmental uh, stage. And in the early stages, you wouldn't expect like a lot of the heavier metals to have been formed yet. And so instead, when they look through web, what do they see? They see, you know, the standard spread of metals, uh, just like we see in, in the objects that are closer to us. And under CGC, of course, this would be expected. Um, but under standard cosmology, that is not expected. And so what do they do? Do they look at that and say, oh, well, this contradicts our, our models, uh, so we have to try maybe coming up with a new model? And no, of course not. They, they will never do that. And so immediately they have to come up with another fictional entity to add on to all of the other fictional ent entities they've come up with so far. And so they say there's these uh, super giant stars, uh, 10,000 times the size of the sun, something which has never been observed. Okay, we've never observed any such thing. Uh, and these uh, stars, because of the way... Uh, they are, they would burn out like super quick. So they would burn out super quick and then be able to explain where suddenly these metals are. And so supposedly at the beginning of the universe, even though we don't observe these with Webb, and they will say, well, we don't observe them because they burn out so quick. And so it's very hard to see them. Uh, and so now we have another another fictional thing to add on top of dark energy and dark matter. Uh, we have these, I don't even know what to call them, uh, monster suns, monster stars. Then uh, we have to posit those because otherwise we can't explain these metallicities. So anyways, uh, I think that's all for today. I want to thank you very much for tuning in. I think that uh, for the Taurus report, because... Um, the Taurus Report was inspired by the flurry of activity that came out with the Webb Telescope. And so in that early uh, dump of data, when everybody was kind of ooing and aahing and wondering what to make of all these observations, uh, I had a lot of uh, material on a weekly basis uh, to present. And so I think that um, at this point in time, probably the Taurus Report will shift uh, to being a once-a-month episode so that I can 
build up material from the observations and the theorizing that is going on. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for tuning in and we will see you again soon. Bye bye for now.